This is episode 20 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Tuesday, January 25th, 2022. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the angry programmer with a mic, Brian Bemrose. Today's show is jam-packed with plenty of rants, opinions, sarcasm, and incomprehensible technological jargon, all read by a guy who's heard of vocal inflection, but wants nothing to do with it. So hold on to your hats. It's going to be a perfectly normal show. From the Call of Duty 365 version 3.11 professional at home for enterprise server workgroup department, Microsoft purchased Activision Blizzard for $68.7 billion in what they are calling an all-cash deal. I think that means that it's all real money as opposed to, say, corporate stock, but I just can't get the image out of my head of a room full of corporate suits setting down $20 bills. 20, 40, 60, 80, 1,006,700. 20, 40, 60, 80, 1,006,800. This is Microsoft's largest acquisition ever ahead of its 2016 purchase of LinkedIn for $26 billion. With the acquisition, Microsoft's entertainment division picks up such game franchises as Call of Duty, Destiny, Diablo, and World of Warcraft. Notably unwoke CEO Bobby Kotick, a current lightning rod for social justice warriors, is reportedly remaining CEO during the transition, but I predict that even after that, he will not be let go. That's not how the Axe executives at Microsoft... Rather, in a few months, he will be shifted to a special projects role with nobody reporting to him. And about six months later, he'll quietly leave the company, wanting to spend more time with his family. Meanwhile, amongst the World of Warcraft communities, a demographic which is highly represented in the Bemrose household, there is one burning question that everybody is speculating about. When will we see Clippy as a raid boss and what kind of loot will he drop? From the non-vital metadata department, this story first popped up a couple weeks ago, but somehow fell off the end of my browser's tab bar. I should really close a few hundred of them one of these days. With the release of iOS 15 last fall, Apple introduced a feature called Private Relay, which is essentially an iOS-specific VPN. When enabled, all of your network requests are encrypted and sent to Apple's iCloud, which then forwards them on from there to whatever site you wanted to reach and proxies the results back to your iPhone. As far as your ISP or mobile carrier is concerned, the only internet site you're in contact with is apple.com. All of the other details of your browsing from the content of the page to even which domains you're using are carefully hidden from prying eyes. Well, those prying eyes don't like that very much. Law enforcement and intelligence agencies have become very accustomed to bulk feeding everyone's browsing data into a giant AI that spits out the names of anybody who said the words bomb and airplane in the same sentence. And so, When Apple released iOS with Private Relay, the usual law enforcement types trotted out all of the usual tropes with a rehearsed predictability. Encryption puts people's lives at risk. It hides criminals' digital footprints. Both actual quotes from the article. It always starts with the unlikely scenario of a terrorist who is smart enough to conduct a coordinated attack that gets around all of the physical safeguards to kill potentially thousands of taxpaying citizens while simultaneously being too stupid to use the Tor browser while planning it. 
Then it inevitably ends with some highly placed and overpaid agency mouthpiece claiming that we're all going to die unless we legislate a backdoor into every piece of technology. I admit adding mobile operators to this chorus of voices is a new one to me, though I guess it makes sense. ISPs and mobile carriers have become very used to being able to track, filter, collect, and sell data on your browsing habits. Last year, several European carriers, Vodafone, Telefonica, Orange, and T-Mobile, jointly penned a letter to regulators. Private Relay purports to enhance users' privacy when connecting to and browsing the internet and by encrypting and redirecting traffic, thereby cutting off other networks and servers from accessing vital network data and metadata, including those operators in charge of the connectivity. And yes, they did just refer to the list of websites you connect to as vital network data and metadata. And yes, they did just claim to be in charge of your connectivity. As far as I'm concerned, the only network data that is vital to my ISP is the address of the next hop and the encrypted payload to deliver there. But encrypted content is understandably harder for these companies to monetize. Of course, their arguments never point out how much your data is worth to them. No, the letter points out that they need to scan all of your packets to, quote, protect users from harmful online material, aka censorship. And so, Mobile operators and ISPs join the chorus of voices pleading with regulators to make encryption, math, illegal. Well, it seems like in the last couple weeks, those ISPs have stepped up their game, taking it up another notch, as it were. In the last couple weeks, there have been reports of several mobile carriers in Europe, as well as T-Mobile and Sprint in the US, having blocked access to iCloud private relay servers. When asked by 9to5Mac, a T-Mobile spokeshole said, Customers who choose plans and features with content filtering or parental controls do not have access to iCloud Private Relay to allow those services to work as designed. All other customers have no restrictions. Plenty of people on forums and Reddit threads are calling bullshit on that one, saying that they have no such features but are being cut off anyway. T-Mobile has offered no further explanation. And finally, with Private Relay, there is always the big question left in the room. Do you trust Apple more than you trust T-Mobile? For a lot of people, I'm sure the answer is yes. Me, I'm not ready to give up my third-party VPN anytime soon. From the Spawnmore Overlords Department. You may not realize it, but the modern AI revolution took place on January 14th, 2011. It was then that the International Business Machines Corporation unveiled an AI that utterly destroyed two human beings on live television. The contest was the Jeopardy game show. The humans were Ken Jennings and Brad Rutter, two of the most successful players in that game's history. The AI was called Skynet. Just kidding. The AI was named Watson, after IBM's first CEO, Thomas J. Watson. In a widely viewed episode of Jeopardy, Watson drubbed the two champions, gaining at one point almost four times the score of the other two combined. It was the dawn of the era of AI overlords, and every tech pundit wanted to talk about it. After their highly successful marketing stunt, IBM announced that the future Jeopardy contestants were safe as Watson was moving into the field of medical diagnostics, where the AI would be used to look at medical Rorschach images and decide if that dark spot was benign, cancerous, or mustard. So here we are a decade later. IBM has just announced that they are selling off their Watson Health division to a private equity firm after having been trying to offload the business for more than a year. The company has not published details of the sale but the original asking price was reportedly $1 billion. Contrast that with the more than $4 billion spent over the last 10 years acquiring smaller, more agile startups to consume into the health conglomerate, and it seems the business wasn't doing so well. 
So if the world is to be conquered by AI, it won't be Watson. The pioneers always have it the toughest, paving the way for some younger, faster little AI whippersnapper to take their place. Me, I'm just glad that IBM never made a sarcastic tech news AI. Then again, maybe they should have. I'm not above selling out for a piece of that $4 billion. From the Iron Oxide Department. Security researchers have identified a bug in the standard library shipped with the Rust programming languages compiler. They were able to reliably trigger a race condition in the std colon fs colon remove dir all function, which can cause the function to delete arbitrary files and directories on the device. The function is a standard library call to recursively delete a directory and everything underneath it. The documentation for that function states that it does not follow symbolic links when deleting. Remove dir all as originally written, will first check to see if a file is a symlink, and if it isn't, then the function takes off and nukes the site from orbit. After all, that's the only way to be sure. The race condition is that an attacker could create a symlink in between the check and the delete, and Rust will dutifully follow that symlink and erase whatever is on the other side. And if that case all sounded like technobabble, let's just say the reason you don't want to follow symlinks is because they can point anywhere in the OS. It could cause a simple delete of a temp folder in your user directory to erase something important elsewhere, like all of your porn. So how do you exploit this bug? Well, it's pretty situational. The program would need to have privileges to delete something that you don't. Otherwise, you'd just delete it directly and save the effort. And obviously, it would have to be a program written in Rust that calls removed or all on a user-supplied path. Then, it's just a matter of tricking the program into deleting a directory containing your poison symlink. Like I said, it's pretty situational. There's not much chance that you'll run across this one during your latest World of Warcraft raid. But what interested me about this vulnerability is that for while the chance is low that you're vulnerable, it's also difficult to patch or even determine if you're vulnerable unless you have the source code. The race condition affects all versions of Rust up to and including 1.58.0. Version 1.58.1 of the compiler has been released with the fix. To patch a vulnerable program requires that you recompile the source code with the latest version of the compiler. Easy peasy if you're using all open source, but there are a lot of closed source binaries out there that don't even tell you which language they're built in, let alone which API calls they use. So to be sure that a system isn't vulnerable to something like this requires going through every single program you run, determine if it is if it used the Rust compiler to build, and beg the vendor to recompile from their hidden source code. Yeah, in the grand scheme of things, this bug isn't awful and it could be a lot worse. I guess it just got me thinking about how difficult it is to keep all of your tool chains up to date in a microservices world. I use almost entirely open source tools now for this and many other reasons. But in a previous career, I worked in the world of enterprise software, where every development team comes with a small army of program managers whose job was to grease the wheels of bureaucracy by talking to every other team's program managers, where you couldn't just rebuild someone else's code. You had to go have your people talk to their people and get them to try to squeeze time into their busy schedule so that they could get you a new compiled binary. Listen to me going off on a nostalgia trip. Oh, the good old days. May they forever be in my past. From the no shit department. According to several lawsuits filed this week in the District of Columbia, Google deceives consumers, invades users' privacy, and makes it nearly impossible for users to avoid being tracked. This is news, of course, to nobody at all. Okay, okay, I suppose I should give some details. The suits were filed by the attorneys general for the states of Texas, Indiana, Washington, as well as Washington, D.C., 
and center mainly around location tracking. They argue that Google makes it unreasonably difficult to opt out of tracking and that even if you do, they still track you in several ways. The filing also points out Google's immense financial incentive to collect and store everyone's location. Google business model relies on constant surveillance of its users, says DCAG Carl Racine. So this is pretty standard stuff. Big corporation is doing shady stuff and some bureaucrats use the opportunity to stand on a soapbox for political gains. The AG of Washington State, Bob Ferguson, performs this grandstanding act so often that he has earned the nickname Sideshow Bob. But that said, it wouldn't hurt my feelings to see Google taken down a few pegs. I mean, let's be honest, they really are exploiting the hell out of users on the Internet. A much more interesting Google story comes to us from Austria, whose data protection authority has determined that Google Analytics is illegal in the European Union. In response to a complaint filed by Max Schrems, one of Europe's most entertaining privacy-minded legal gadflies, the Austrian authority has determined that because Google is subject to surveillance by U.S. intelligence services and can be ordered to disclose data of European citizens to them, that Google Analytics violates Europe's General Data Protection Act by transmitting the data of EU citizens across the Atlantic, and further, that Google is incapable of resolving this problem so long as the United States laws are the way they are. The issue for the GDPR is the United States Cloud Act, passed in 2018 and signed by Donald Trump, which enables U.S. law enforcement to compel a U.S.-based company to produce data about an individual, regardless of the physical location where the data is stored. A 2020 EU Court of Justice ruling, also instigated by Schrems, determined that so long as the Cloud Act is in effect, U.S. laws are incompatible with the GDPR, making it effectively illegal for U.S. companies to collect or store any data on EU citizens. Of course, the CJEU ruling provided no general means for enforcement, so U.S. companies have largely ignored the ruling. The GDPR itself allows for EU citizens to file complaints, which are considered on a case-by-case -case basis. And so that is what Schrems is doing for every single company. The court now has the authority to fine the company for every day that it continues to use analytics in the EU. It is unclear whether Google will change anything or simply consider this to be the cost of doing business, paying the fines out of the boatloads of cash they're raking in from exploiting that user data. And continuing the theme of Google's legal woes, we have a third Google story, this time from the land down under. As hard as the EU is working to protect privacy, Australia is working even harder to protect censorship. In 2004, a Victorian lawyer named George Defteros, who made, quote, made his name representing members of the Melbourne underworld, was arrested on conspiracy charges. The arrest was reported in The Age in an article which was none too flattering about the lawyer's connection to organized crime. The charges were ultimately dropped. More than a decade later, Defteros sued the paper to have the article removed from the news site and sued Google to remove any links to the article, claiming it was defamatory and had ruined his reputation. It's not clear why he waited so long. The case against Google worked its way through the Australian court system, and in April of 2020, the Supreme Court ruled against Google, ordering the company to pay $40,000, better check those couch cushions, and remove all links to the article from its index. This last part is what Google is taking issue with, according to a court filing earlier this week, claiming that if the ruling stands, it would be devastating to freedom of speech in Australia, as it would be forced to censor search results delivered to all Australians. As you may know from listening to this show, I abhor censorship, and I reluctantly have to side with Google on this one. But that said, it's hard to summon much sympathy for the megacorporation. 
A big part of the reason people go to the company and demand that it censor things is that the company already censors things, and they're very good at it. They already have the infrastructure in place to decide what you are or aren't allowed to see. They employ it all the time. Google can say they don't want the internet to be censored, but what they really mean is that only Google should be allowed to decide which parts of the internet should be censored. This kind of hypocrisy is difficult to defend. A big angry thank you goes out to Sean McCune, Rhett Vandenberg, Bacon Dude, Curtis Peterson, and Don Mills for producing this episode of Angry Tech News. Angry Tech News is produced on the value for value model. We don't take sponsors, we don't play ads, and we don't charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. If you received value from listening to this show, please send value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and click the donate button to make a one-time or recurring donation. Send what you think this show is worth to you, whether it's $10, $50, or $250. That's all for me. I've been Ryan Bemrose, the Angry Programmer. I'll come back next week with more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the Angry Programmer, Ryan Bemrose, at angrytechnews.com. Stay angry. Stay angry. Stay angry.